This is the Millennial Millionaire Through Real Estate Podcast. My wife and I used to drive to Tucson, Arizona, which is where our first property was. Um, and we'd leave at two in the morning. It's a seven and a half, eight hour drive. We'd get there at 9 a.m. And we would tour properties all day long and then drive home, get home at like one or 2 a.m. the next morning and then go to our W-2 jobs. And this is what we were doing while we were still working our full-time jobs. And so by doing that, it showed the brokers, number one, we were serious, right? No one's going to wake up at two in the morning and drive to Tucson if they're not seriously considering buying a building. You're listening to the Millennial Millionaire Through Real Estate Podcast, where we discuss tangible tips, tricks, and best practices for becoming financially free. The show is designed for people who want to either start real estate investing or for those who want to scale their real estate business. What's up, guys? I'm your host, Jonathan Farber. I hope you guys are well and healthy. For any first-time listeners, thank you guys for being here. I really appreciate it. The goal of this show is to explore ways to become financially free through real estate or to increase passive cash flow through real estate. A little bit about myself. I work in corporate America at a software company, and my side hustle is real estate. I currently own eight units, a mix of small multifamily and short-term rentals, aka Airbnb. I've house-hacked, bird flipped, and as mentioned, short-term rentals to name a few strategies. I love to network, so hit me up on any platform, Facebook, LinkedIn, Bigger Pockets, Instagram, or just search Jonathan Farber Real Estate and you should find me. Also, if you are not already in the exclusive Facebook group, this is where I post most and do a lot of behind-the-scenes content of sharing deals, strategies, and systems. See you there. Let's get to today's show sponsor. After building my own portfolio, speaking with over 100 investors on this podcast and many more from the Facebook group, I've noticed a few common themes of why people don't get started or remain successful in real estate. They don't have the right team, they aren't sure of their market, or they don't know where to find deals. The people at Martel Turnkey are fixing this. That's why they offer fully turnkey properties in markets where the numbers actually make sense. What does this mean? It means they buy properties at a discount, fix them up, put a tenant in place, and oh yeah, I give you options for property management or financing. They have people on the ground in cities where you can still cash flow and see appreciation every single month. I'll say it as simply as this. When you have the right team and systems in place, there's no reason not to get started. If you like a property or have any questions, you can schedule a phone call by clicking on the link below or going on their website and clicking on the contact tab to set up a call. There is no hard sell, push, or commitment needed. The call will be there to answer any questions you have or to see if or how their products might be a good fit for you and what you're looking for. So visit martelturnkey.com and click contact or send an email to info at martelturnkey.com today. What's up, guys? Today, we have an awesome episode with Kyle Mitchell. Kyle is based in Southern California, but moving to Scottsdale, Arizona shortly, where he does most of his real estate investing he was working in the golf industry in golf management and did play in the mini tours actually before this. It was interesting. We talked a lot about golf on the show, but he started out investing while working in a corporate job, started with Rich Dad, Poor Dad, then got into single family homes, then graduated into syndication. And since then has grown his business into 170 units where he purchased a 42 unit and 128 unit totaling about 15.5 million uh, he did this through real estate syndication in a short period of time. So we dig into kind of all the nuts and bolts of that, how he started acquiring multifamily, how he found his coach, how he kind of got off the ground and left his job and kind of just burned the boats and just a really good show as far as how to get started in multifamily syndication or multifamily in general. The main learning I had from the show was his view on how he thinks about 
income or cash generating activities and how he does some of them himself, how he decides his partner, what his partner should do, or how he decides what can be outsources to virtual assistants or administrative assistants and how he remains kind of productive day to day. I just thought it was really interesting, kind of a refreshing take. The tangible tip is something that I absolutely love. If you haven't seen it before, I posted it in the Facebook group a couple of weeks ago, or you could just check it out on YouTube. It is called Fear Setting by Tim Ferriss, where anytime you're at a crossroad of being a little scared to do something, what Tim says and what Kyle mentioned was to write out all the things that would be the worst case scenario. And for him, he kind of explains what that looked like in his life on the episode of, he was thinking about, all right, should I do real estate full-time? And what would the worst case scenario be? And basically when he got to the end of kind of all the worst case possibilities, he realized that he could just go back to a job that he was already in right now that he didn't like, but he could go back to it if he needed to. So where it brought him was thinking that he was already basically in the worst place he could end up. So why not just take the risk and try to take a leap of faith and improve his life and start building this business. And it paid off because now he's grown it into something that is awesome and helping a ton of people invest and also learn about real estate. So just a really healthy, but strong reminder there of fear setting by Tim Ferriss without any further ado. Awesome episode today with Kyle Mitchell. All right, Kyle, what is going on, man? Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for being here. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me on Jonathan. So Kyle, just jumping into it, you've done a lot in a short period of time and, uh, in an area that I think a lot of people originally wouldn't be able to do, let's say a lot of real estate in um, living in Southern California and investing in Arizona, but would love to hear from you kind of your um, projection and kind of start from a high level, how you got into real estate and then also from a high level, what you do in real estate today. Yeah, perfect. Uh, again, thanks for having me on. And uh, I got started in real estate in 2010 and it was while I still had my W2 job. I was a full-time regional manager for a golf management company. And, um, you know, I thought I was going to be doing that for the rest of my life. I've been playing golf since I was a kid and kind of loved it at that point in 2010, um, just being in the golf business. And I was just trying to put some money to work. And I've never been a guy that put money into the stock market for some reason or another. Uh, read Rich Dad, Poor Dad, read Cashflow Quadrant, and I immediately sold my, my house that I was living in and put my money into single family homes to try and generate some income. Um, those investments went okay, but I wanted to start scaling. And in single family homes, it was tough to scale. I was buying turnkey because I didn't have a ton of time to do the burrs and the flips myself. Um, and so there was limited cash flow uh, for them. So I did that for a few years. I got up to 10 houses. Um, and then I stopped and um, for a couple of years, I didn't do any investing in real estate at that point. And in 2014, 15, I really got tired of what I was doing. Uh, I was burnout. The golf business was actually shrinking. I wanted to be growing in the company. And so I started looking for other things to do. And I said, hey, I'm investing in real estate. I've got my real estate license on the side. Um, why don't I look into investing in real estate? And it took me two years actually of looking around, seeing what else I can do. I looked at buying franchises, all sorts of stuff. And um, I found online a course for multifamily real estate. And I bought it three weeks later. I decided that's what I wanted to do after watching it. 11 months later, I left my full-time job to do what I do now, which is uh, I buy multifamily uh, real estate. So apartment buildings, and we use a model called multifamily syndication, where we raise funds from um, passive investors and provide them a return on their investment and uh, turn around, you know, under mismanaged properties. 
Got it. Okay. Awesome. And that's, that's interesting. I, I saw the golf thing in your bio. Um, a lot of people in our community love golf. I played golf in college, hated it, but now love it again. So I got to ask though, do you still play golf at all? Or did you give it up when you left the industry? Yeah. So I got burnt out because I played a lot in high school. I played professionally in the mini tours around Southern California. So I was burnt out before I even got into the golf industry as, you know, a W2. Um, and now I'm starting to play a little bit more, but yeah, I lost my passion for it because it was really a job for me. Um, uh, you know, not just working at the golf course, but actually playing golf was a job for me. And mm -hmm. so I did get burnt out. My wife's in the golf industry as well. It's something we want to get back into, but while we were in the golf industry, we, we got burnt out. Got it. I got to ask though. So is it like, like most good golfers, is it that you just don't want to play if you don't think you'll play reasonably well, or could you even go out and just kind of have fun, you know, have a couple of beers? Now I can, in the past it wasn't, I would get frustrated because obviously practice is a huge deal in sports and you've got to maintain that. Um, and I haven't, and so I'm not as good as I used to be. So it is a little frustrating, but it's all about the company now. Um, mm -hmm. and if you're with the right people, you know, you can still have a good time. Okay. I love it. All right. Um, I want to go back to the beginning a little bit. You mentioned you started with turnkey properties and there are a lot of people that might be listening to that who are considering doing the same. They, well, maybe before COVID, they were working a lot of hours in their corporate job. They really didn't have a lot of time. And one thing that we talk a lot about on the show is I think people for a lot of reasons misjudge the value that they can add on a first property from 500 miles away. Like you can read the bird books, but at the end of the day, it's difficult, even if you have experience, let alone being a beginner and trying to manage people and deals and money from distance. So a lot of people then consider turnkey. Um, then a lot of other people that like, let's say, listen to the show or considering ways to get in that may want to get into multifamily. What sometimes I tell them is it's great to invest as a limited partner or passively into a deal. And you can kind of learn the mechanics of multifamily or real estate from someone that's operating at a high level. And they'll give you a little bit of a peek behind the curtain. You'll make some money. You'll learn along the way. So I'm curious, when you look back at the way you got into it, would you have even done the single families, the turnkey stuff, if you could go back and let's say magic wand moment, or did you feel you kind of needed that to progress and then learn about it to get to the bigger deals? I would not have done it, to be honest with you. I would have gone straight into multifamily. And if I would have started back in, you know, 2010 to 2013, you know, I'd, I'd be in a much different position. I mean, the last 10 years have been amazing. And in that industry, uh, I learned a lot. Uh, but at the same time, my, my background is in operations and management. And so I didn't need to learn that piece of it, which is a huge piece in what we do now in multifamily. So uh, yeah, if I had to go back, I would definitely just hop straight into multifamily. And even though you invested in some single families, it seems like you jumped into multifamily and apartment buildings pretty aggressively. Can you just talk us through the how? Because as we know, there's kind of two, there's, there's a spectrum of two sides of it. People that just jump in kind of blindly. And then there are people that analysis paralysis, they, they just get educated for years and don't take action. But it seems like you were able to make the leap fairly quickly. And then that also leads me to kind of the question of, did you have a coach? Did you learn just by doing? Did you learn by partnering? How did you enable yourself or equip yourself to take action quickly into apartment buildings? Yeah, I'm just that type of person that once I make a decision, I go for it and I'm all in. Um, I did take a while to make that decision. Like I said, I was looking for something to do in 2015. I didn't make the leap to 
even I didn't find multifamily until 2017 and left my full-time job in 2018. So that took me a while, but once I made the decision, I just went for it. And I was, you know, I'm in my late thirties and I was getting married and I thought to myself, if I don't do this now, I'm never going to do it. So let's just go for it. My wife was supportive fiance at the time. And so I went for it, but you know, I did hire a coach. Um, I think a coach in this industry for what we do is very important. You can do it in single family without a coach, I think. Um, but there's so many moving parts and we raise capital. So we're a fiduciary to other people's money. And there's just a lot of different things. And you're buying multi-million dollar apartment buildings, which essentially are multi-million dollar businesses. So you definitely need to be coached and prepared when you get into this business. But uh, yeah, I left my job before we even had our first deal. I was just educating ourselves, building our list, and then kind of jump right in. I do think my background helped to... Um, uh, helped in a sense that I can get straight into being a lead sponsor. You know, a lot of people say, oh, Kyle, you came from the golf industry. It's nothing to do with apartments, but apartments is not just buying apartments. It's, it's building systems, operating, um, you know, managing, uh, managing the property management company, managing projects and budgets. And that's what I did at the, at the golf business. So I transferred a lot of those skills into what I do in a multifamily today. Mm -hmm. A lot of people listening to this might be torn between staying in a job and using it to build a business on the side or leaving that job fully. Like I, I just went through that myself. I, I just, now I could say, because the episode will be out in a little while. I am now full-time real estate as of oh, congrats. A, a week ago, I, I hit my financial freedom number and I, and just didn't want to work anymore. So I, I left, but I was torn on that for such a long time. And I've, I felt like every week I woke up with a new answer of, I'm going to leave and do this full time or no, let me do this. And then the next week I'd say, well, maybe I'm holding myself back a little bit because, you know, I didn't burn the boats. And now, you know, I have this other thing in my head. So I would love to hear, it sounds like you just jumped in and did it, but like, was that a difficult decision for you? Or did you do anything, I guess, to check some boxes before you left the job to feel a little more comfortable? Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, like I said, it took me three years from the time I started looking. And so I started saving up a nest egg. So I definitely had enough money for a couple of years to survive on if, um, if things didn't go the, according to plan. And it wasn't all, you know, peaches uh, for the last two or three years. There's definitely some struggles and ups and downs and, and wondering if I made the right decision. But the, the thing that actually made me make that jump so quickly was, um, Tim Ferriss, he talks about his fear setting exercise in the four hour work week. And if you take the fear exer exercise, essentially it's asking yourself, what's the worst that can happen if I did this? And what's the worst that can happen if that happened? And then what's the worst that can happen from there? And I came back to the realization that the worst thing that can actually happen was that I would have to go get a job, which is essentially what I was sitting in. And I would be able to get a job in the golf industry, no problem. So my worst nightmare was what I was actually living already. And so I said, screw it. I'm going to do it. We're going to do this and we're going to make it. And if I don't, I have to go get a job. So. I love that you just said that. I literally probably two weeks ago posted that exact thing into the Facebook group, his Ted talk, and then a YouTube video where he talks about the fear setting exercise. We will link that in the show notes, but that is such a powerful exercise. Yeah. And I'm so glad you just explained it like that, that you were already living in the worst case scenario. Right. For most people, when they realize that, it's like, why not? Like save up a little money, give myself a year to pursue a dream of mine or, 
give myself some runway, but I'm already in the thing that I fear. So, so just why not do it? So that's just so good. Um, I would love to hear a little bit about your experience with coaching. A lot of our listeners as well wonder, should I get a coach? And a lot of them are coming from the corporate world where education beyond college is laughed at, frowned upon, put down. Um, and then on the other side of it, there are a lot of, I would say, gurus, very bad kind of like fake education out there. So it is a tough kind of landscape to navigate. I personally fall in the camp of pay as much as you need to find the people. I mean, do the research, but even if you go through two bad ones to find the third, it's worth it. But I'm curious, was that something you struggled with or did like vetting on to feel good about the coach you went with? And then kind of maybe just if you could take us through some of the mechanics of that relationship. Yeah, coaching is very important. I mean, I, I liken it to golf, right, or any sport. Every athlete has a coach. And to excel at a high level, you need a coach. And um, in this business, you want a coach that's been doing what you want to be doing. You don't want the coach that's just sitting there coaching, not doing it, because they're not putting their money where their mouth is. But yeah, I vetted four or five coaches. And honestly, at the end of the day, I went with my gut with who I felt most comfortable with. And that's what I think everyone should do because getting a coach is about pushing yourself outside of your comfort zone. That's what their job is. And if you're not comfortable and you don't feel in your gut that he's the right coach or she's the right coach, you're going to have more of a tough time getting out of your comfort zone. And so um, very key, but I think coaching is, is so crucial. And it, I know some people frown upon an Africa school, like you said, but I think it's the key to people's success. I mean, I know people that are worth tens, tens, 20, 30, a hundred million dollars, and they spend hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars on coaching themselves. You know, even Tony Robbins has a coach mm. and he's, he's at the top of the top. Right. And so if he can have a coach and wants a coach, then why shouldn't you have a coach? So true. Love the golf analogy. And even I'm thinking about LeBron where it yeah. came out a couple of months ago, he spends a million dollars a year on his body alone. And coaching is just a part of that. He's got a performance coach. He's got his team coach, but it's just like, for me, the change that, that I needed to have in my head was this isn't an expense, it's an investment. And mm -hmm. it moved off my personal book into my investment book. And that for me, was just a very different conversation that also helped with paying for people to come help us with marketing or learning about marketing, all that stuff. But that's such a good point that the best have coaches and they don't try to take it on alone, even the, the just the best of the best have coaches. So um, that's, that's really cool there. The next thing I wanna talk about is the actual industry and business itself you know, maybe your first deal or kind of how you got your start in the industry, working with that coach, or maybe some relationships that he introduced you to, or that you started building on your own. Always curious to hear how people get into their first deal. And I think yours was a 42 unit, correct me if I'm wrong, but could you maybe just take us through kind of the nuts and bolts of how that deal came together, how the money was organized, how the partners were organized and just what it looked like? Yeah. And going back to coaching real quick, uh, you know, another important thing about coaching is you get that network. So you're in a net or in and around a network of people who are doing what you want to be doing. And so you can build your network a lot faster and build partners a lot faster. And so, you know, we met our partners through similar networks, not our coaching network, but meetup networks. And so, you know, I used to, um, I've told this story a million times. So if, if some people have heard it, I apologize, but my wife and I used to drive to Tucson, Arizona, which is where our first property was. Um, and we'd leave at two in the morning. It's a seven and a half, eight hour drive. We'd get there at 9am and we would tour properties all day long and then drive home, get home at like one or 2am the next morning and then go to our W2 jobs. And this is what we were doing while we were still working our full-time jobs. 
And so by doing that, it showed the brokers, number one, we were serious, right? No one's going to wake up at two in the morning and drive to Tucson if they're not seriously considering buying a building. And so on one of those drives, a broker who I'd been building a relationship with called me and said, hey, Kyle, I literally just signed um, to take on this property and list it. Would you like to see it? So I was literally the first investor to see this property. Uh, I said, sure. Our property management company was going to be spending the day with us that day as well. So they got to see it. We got to tour the comps that day. We liked it. We locked it up and, and got it done. Um, and that's how we got our first deal. So, um, you know, if it wasn't for us driving that day, we probably wouldn't have been the first investors to see it. You know, a lot of investors nowadays will sit behind a phone and say, hey, I'm from California. I want to purchase a multifamily building, but they've never been out to the market or maybe they go out there once and that's it. You know, we were going out there once a month at least, and now I go out there twice a month, and now we're moving to Arizona, right? So we're a very we're showing the brokers that we're serious, and so because of that, they threw us a bone. Yeah, that reminds me of that's such a great point. Thank you for sharing that. That just reminds me of something that a friend of mine, um, you probably know Logan Freeman, when he was on the show, okay. had mentioned: if you can fly, you can buy. And basically, showing the brokers that you're serious is half the battle. Getting that first call didn't come after just picking up the phone once and saying, Hey, I'm looking to do a multifamily deal. Can you start sending me stuff? Or can you put me on your list? They get 50 of those a week. It's a difference between going there, showing you're serious, taking an interest in this person and actually establishing rapport so that when they do have something come across your top of mind, which is exactly what you did. And again, for anyone listening to this, it's about being pleasantly persistent and just staying in front of people and showing them that you're going to take action if they present something. It's kind of the other thing. I'm sure like this was something you were doing, but like we always say, even if a broker sends you a deal, you need to let them know why you don't like the deal. You need to always be communicating with them and kind of just pushing the relationship forward so that they are thinking of you positively. So just such good points there. I guess as you were doing that, was there any other maybe things that you look back on for deal finding of, of how long it took or how many deals you had to analyze or any other things that were challenges that you had to kind of overcome before you were able to even get a contract accepted on your first multifamily? Yeah, it took us 18 months to close our first deal. So, you know, it didn't happen overnight. And I always tell people it's all about consistency and persistence, right? Um, it, consistency on the fact that I call brokers every three weeks. Every three weeks, I call about 59 brokers. People don't believe it, but I do. And, and half of them don't even answer, right? But it's okay because they know that Kyle calls every three weeks. I'm always top of mind. And if that person gets something, I'm on the top of their list, right? And so um, I've been doing that for over two years now. Um, and over time, it's worked. But a lot of people want immediate results. So I, I was talking to an investor a couple months ago and he told me, oh, I've underwritten so many deals, countless deals, it's unbelievable. And I'm, I'm ready to give up. And I said, well, how many deals have you underwritten? Uh, 40 to 45. I said, you're not even close. Right? You're not close. You've got to underwrite hundreds of deals. So you either need to find more deal flow or underwrite, or just, you know, if you have that deal flow, you've got to get through them. Um, and so I don't know how many deals exactly we underwrote, but it was certainly over a hundred. Um, mm -hmm. like I said, it took 18 months and, uh, it's just all about consistency and doing the same thing over and over and understanding it's all about the process. It's not about getting the deal. It's, it's what you do to get the deal. And if you can just focus on that, it's, it's just like, you know, when you were mentioning LeBron or, or golf, it's all about how you practice and how you prepare there. There's that saying that people don't rise to the occasion. They actually fall to the level of their highest preparation. 
highest level of preparation. And I truly believe that. And if you're prepared and you do the right things, that's going to lead to your success. So that's just so good. I mean, there's, there's just so much here that if people went back and re-listened to, like, especially if, if you're feeling stuck or it feels like it sucks or it's hard right now with COVID and we're going to get to competitive markets in a sec, because I think most people would agree it's highly competitive out there. And, you know, whatever book you need to read or thought you need to have, like it just, some things take time. It's kind of like, I usually use the analogy, like you're not going to marry someone on a first date. It's very similar to this. Like it's just a process. And then when you understand kind of the funnel of what metrics can you track? How many people do you need to talk to, to get how many deals sent to you, to how many deals you analyze, how many deals you LOI, to how many deals you do due diligence on, like down the process. But I guess like when you're thinking about it, and you're trying to figure out, okay, like what, what strategies can we be doing to kind of tweak knobs? Because a challenge that I think a lot of multifamily investors have is if there's not enough deal flow, there's not that much that can be done unless you start going direct to seller. And then in that case, it's like, well, what do we do? We have a lot of potential time on our hands and we want to be productive and use that time. So I, I'm always curious to hear how people kind of think about that. If it means then they go on the offensive or maybe you have enough lead flow or deal flow right now in your pipeline that you can stay busy analyzing it and making offers. But I guess, I don't know, not exactly like a form question, but I'm just curious if you have a comment or how you think about kind of that ebb and flow of finding deals and things that you have to do after you find deals and then get them under contract and kind of balance it. Yeah. A deal flow is a challenge, I think right now, or good deal flow, you know, the capital's there, but finding deals is tough. And so I think a lot of newer investors think they're just going to put themselves on a list with brokers, get deals sent all day. And one of them will be the ones, but to be honest right now, the on-market deals are very overpriced and, you know, most markets are highly competitive. So you're going up against a ton of different competition. And so you definitely need to separate yourself on one side or the other, but, um, we're always thinking of different ways to, um, to get deals. And this may sound counterintuitive, but almost sectioning off certain areas of a given market and focusing on only that market, you have less inventory, but you have more focus on, you know, the right product that you want and working with brokers to contact those sellers for you because they have the relationships. We also do some direct mail and some text message marketing and things like that, but you need to have multiple fishing poles in the water so you have a higher probability of catching that fish. And so if you're only gonna be getting on market deals from brokers, it's less likely that you're gonna be doing that. But you know, there is a balance between that and being able to manage the deals and close on the deals and raise enough money and all that kind of stuff. But you learn that as you go. Um, but I, I think there's two important things when it comes to multifamily that you need to be doing all the time, which is getting as much deal flow as you possibly can. So you can close on deals and raising capital as much as you can by building your network and your list. Do you have any favorite ways to find deals or put extra lines in the water? Um, or any that, you know, you've experimented with that either worked better or didn't work, you know, just in your you know years of doing this? It's, it's kind of just staying top of mind with brokers. I mean, it's the whole reason why I'm moving out to Arizona so I can build closer relationships with brokers. I mean, I call them every three weeks, but it's still, it's not enough. Um, and it doesn't move the needle um, as much as if I was in that market, buying them lunch, going to have a drink with them, playing golf with them and building that relationship. Um, are there other ways? Yeah, certainly, you know, you can do direct mail and all that kind of stuff and try and contact owners. Everyone has a different type of niche. I'm, I'm all about building relationships and that's what this industry is about. And really, I think 
any type of industry that you're in, when it comes to business, it's all boils down to the relationships. And so if you can be one of those great relationships and not just be um, all about business with the brokers, but get to know them, mm -hmm. um, you're going to have a leg up. Okay. Um, the next part of this that I want to talk about is raising capital. Um, for people that transition from single family homes or using their own money to, to doing larger deals, multifamily or syndication, this is a hot button topic and a challenge for a lot of people. How did you go about the process of learning how to raise capital, starting to raise capital, and then actually like seeing through commitments of people that vouch to put money into a deal? Yeah, we went the educational platform uh, route and we learned that through our coach and then just reading all the books, you know, you can definitely do that. We were not highly connected with capital and a lot of people thought we would be because we're from the golf industry, but we just weren't, um, you know, I'm from the public golf sector and there's just not a ton of money over there. So um, if you are connected, you can do it a different way, but we went the educational platform. So what we did was started a newsletter with family and friends. Then we started a meetup. We took all those meetup connections, added them to the newsletter. Then a couple months later, we did a podcast. A couple months later, we added a second meetup. A couple months later, we added a second podcast. And then eventually, our biggest kind of lead source now is our conference. And so we have a summit uh, based on asset management, which has been great. And then we've got a book coming out here in a couple months based on asset management. So it's been a slow, steady progression over three years to build that up, but it's kind of one thing after another, adding value to people, educating them on the space, and then having one-on-one -on -one conversations with those investors. But like I said, it, it took 18 months to do our first deal. So I had been building our investor database for 18 months. And I think if we would have gotten a deal at 12 months, we probably would not have been ready. Raising capital is completely different than apartment investing. It's two different industries essentially. And it is very difficult to raise capital. It's, it's not easy, it's getting easier for us, but that's because we've taken years to build up our database and add value and, and build up our content. And so, you know, I always say when you're raising capital, you get, the, you get to have a peek behind the curtains of someone's life. You know, you call someone and you say, hey, you wanna invest $50,000 in this deal? They may be on a trip in Europe and just don't want to at this time. They may need to show liquidity because they're refinancing their house. They may be having a baby and just don't have time. Someone may have passed away in their family, all these things. And so you think you have a million dollars committed, but of that million dollars, life is going to happen to some of those people. And you cannot always count on all those commitments. Yeah. Wow. There's just so much good stuff there. I also, I hadn't heard anyone put it like that, that it's almost two different like sports or two different parts of the business. There's the deal finding, then there's the raising money. You hear them mentioned in separate buckets, but not like such a completely different skill set. And I actually just want, want I mean, we're, I'm thinking about golf just now with your background. And I'm thinking about like, it's the equivalent of someone that's just a really good putter versus someone that's great driving the ball. Like yep. it's just, a, these are, I almost say like, you know, I'm not the best putter, pretty good ball striker, but like, I'm like, putting is like its own sport. Like it's, it's really its own game. It has nothing to do with being athletic, being flexible, you know, generating speed. It's just people that are good putters. They're great. So it's almost like it can be, I almost think about that as like really good, like deal analyzers or really good, like due diligence people, you know, like it's different kind of sections of it, I guess, just down that path. Where do you feel your strengths are in the business? You mentioned earlier systems, tools, management, kind of from your background. I'd love to hear if that is it, how that plays into what you do kind of day to day.
because as we know, it's a team sport and some people are better than others. And people that listen to this podcast, have heard me say it regularly. I hate analyzing deals. I will not do it in my industry and in my business. So I'm just curious, you know, what you find your best uses of time are and then how you've solved for the other things that you're not maybe as strong at. Yeah, my background is in operations and management. So that's where my strength lies is after we close the deal, managing the property manager, you know, keeping people the budget, um, implementing the systems to identify the bottlenecks on where issues are happening. That's what I love to do. I also, I don't like the underwriting part, but once we find a deal that's close, I love digging into the numbers and, and making sure they're all right and things like that because I'm a numbers guy. But we do have someone on our team that underwrites our deals because it is such a tedious process and it's just not something that we want to take on. Um, and it, in, we found it was slowing us down because I could not underwrite all the deals. Um, and so, so nowadays you need to act very quickly on all of our deals. We, we have gotten them under contract or put an offer in, you know, within 24 hours of being notified of them. Um, because that's how quick you have to move. So um, it's really important. And, you know, we've added an executive assistant to take a, a lot of things off of our plate that we shouldn't be doing, you know, things that need to get done, but things that don't generate us income. And so, you know, we've got that mindset now is, you know, what are the things that generate income, which is raising capital and finding deals. And so that's what we're focused on. And all the other things that we're not doing, um, we have our executive assistant do, or we hire a virtual assistant. Um, and we have, you know, other people like that, that, that take on that responsibility. But I think that's probably one of the biggest mistakes I made when I was first getting started. I was doing too much myself and worried about the couple hundred dollars I'm going to spend on this virtual assistant or, you know, the $2,000 a month I'm going to pay for, for this. And looking back, it would have freed up a lot more time for me to do what I need to do, which is, you know, drive the bottom line for our company. Yeah. You kind of mentioned it, but and it might be a specific thing, a moment, a, a deal, or like a current thing in your business. But what do you, uh, well, no, actually, let's take that back. What what right now in business do you find to be the biggest challenge? Or, you know, like in your business as it grows, what, what is your biggest challenge either day to day or for the year, you know, whatever that maybe, I also ask that question if someone wanted to reach out and try to bring value, you know, if there's anyone listening that can maybe help with something. But what's your biggest challenge, I guess, currently in the business? Just making sure that we're balanced as we scale. Um, right now we're at that part, we've got four properties, you know, we want to do two or three more this year. We, we just hired an executive assistant a few months ago. We want to hire an asset manager, but do you put the cart before the horse? Um, or do you wait? And then you're kind of, you know, being reactive versus proactive. I think that's really important. So we want to be a larger firm. And so making sure that we're looking two, three, four years out right now and, and scaling appropriately, I think you can scale too quickly. Um, but you can also, you know, create bottlenecks within your own business by not hiring people and scaling fast enough. So it's just that balance of scale for us right now. Got it. Okay. You kind of answered a question I, I kind of usually wind down with, which is around where do you see yourself with this business? You know, why are you doing it? You know, a lot of people I'd say at the point that, that you're at, or a lot of people in the industry, it's not about the money anymore. They're already pretty financially set. So I'm, I'm curious, where do you see the business? What are your goals with kind of growing this into um, over the next couple of years? Yeah, I'd, I'd love to have a C-suite of executives working in our company. You know, right now, my business partner, Gary, and I are that C-suite, but we would love to have, you know, a director of uh, acquisitions, director of operations, asset manager, all those types of things. 
um, and then be kind of be able to kind of uh, operate at a high level. The reason why I'm in this business now, it wasn't why I got it in it in the beginning, but I absolutely love helping people, um, whether it's from the coaching side, getting into the business, helping educate people, and also helping our investors kind of build their wealth through this. It's really been um, something that I found along the way. Ultimately, I was doing this in the beginning for myself and to provide myself financial freedom, um, which, you know, I essentially got myself an, a new full-time job is what this <laughs> is. Um, but, you know, eventually I'd love to be um, still in the business, but working at it at a, at a very high ownership level versus being in the business. And so that's the goal is to, in five to 10 years, kind of be working on the business more than in the business. Got it. Very cool. You mentioned one thing there that I, I just wanted to pick on um, that you have a partner and this is a partner driven business. I don't know that many people in it interviewing a lot of people on the show that, that do it either completely them, themselves or don't have a partner that takes on some of the business. But at the same time, a lot of people in our group, they, they consider partnering up with other beginners. And I never really think that's a good idea. Um, I think, and that's just from experience of partners that having partnerships that have either gone well or not gone well and should be strategic. So I'm curious to hear how you and your partner came together and if he's better at, at some things than you or vice versa, or kind of like how and why it came together. Yeah, it came together. Um, we, when we were looking in Arizona, we were at a meetup that we both attend. We've been going to it for a year together. So we knew who each other were, uh, but you know, never really um, talked much past that. And one day he came up to me and said, Hey, I know you invest in Arizona. Uh, I'd be interested in going out with you on one of your trips. Uh, Cause I'm looking out there as well. So uh, at that point in time, we were driving, not flying. And so those drives are five, six hours. Then you drive properties all day and then you drive back. So we're in the car for 16, 18 hours together. So you get to know someone pretty quickly, you know, and we on those drives back would underwrite deals together and go back and forth. And so it was a good partnership and it just worked well. And for the first two deals that we did, we actually did them under our separate companies. We wanted to make sure that we worked well together and manage things together and split things up well. And then after two deals, everything went well. And so then we formed uh, HT Capital Group to you know be in the same company. But partnerships can work very di many different ways. You don't have to form companies. That's just kind of what we did so we can scale. Um, but yeah, partnership is very important and you want to make sure that, you know, it's just like a marriage. You're going to be with that person for three, five, seven years. And if you're doing multiple deals, it's going to be much longer than that. So you need to make sure you're on the same page very early on. Good deal. Kyle, is there anything that we haven't talked about that maybe you'd like to, or just in the time that we have left, maybe haven't covered? Yeah, I always like to talk about asset management because that's kind of my passion. Just, you know, there's a lot of education out there as far as um, getting your first deal, raising capital, and all those things are extremely important. But don't forget the asset management side. A lot of people don't teach about what you do after you close on a deal. And that's really where the world, real work begins. And you want to have someone on your team that has experience on that. Um, and so, you know, we, we teach on that. We've got a free summit. Uh, it's called the Asset Management Summit. Uh, that we teach people on that. And, um, you know, you're buying a multi-million dollar business, like I said before. So you need to have the skill set to run that business as well. I just don't want anyone to, to leave, not sure what that actually means. And because we have a lot of beginners, what is asset management? I think our group is familiar with property management, but not maybe so sure with asset management. 
Yeah, great question. And a lot of people think that they're the same thing and they're absolutely different. Essentially, you do have a property management company on site that's managing your property day to day, but asset management is the person that's holding them accountable and identifying where they need they need um, to improve. And so what we do is, you know, we hop on weekly calls with the property management team, we visit, we have systems that hold them accountable, like shopper reports, where we'll do an audit of them online. And, and we basically help them improve um, and execute our business plan. But you cannot just hand the keys over to a property management company and say, hey, execute my business plan. You know, we'll talk to you once a month when you send me the financials. I mean, if that's your, if that is your business plan, then you're going to fail. Uh, the last 10 years, you probably could have gotten away with it because the market was so hot um, and you could have done a lot of things wrong and still gotten away with it. But now uh, the way the market is, people are overpaying a little bit. So it's even more important on the management side to have all those systems in place. And an asset manager is someone that manages the manager. Awesome. Kyle, man, this has been fun. This has been a very thorough, but uh, I would say high impact, succinct episode covered a lot of topics, but all really important topics. So I just want to say thank you for coming on. What's the best way for people to get in touch, check out your social media, podcast, meetup, all that? Yeah, I appreciate that. Um, and it was fun having uh, being on. Um, the best place is amsummit2021.com. Like I said, it's a free summit, but we like to educate people about asset management. And so we're putting that on on June 21st. It's a seven-day conference. Um, and again, completely free. So that's the best way to find us. Or you can go to our website, which has all of our content. It's aptcapitalgroup.com. Okay, awesome. Well, Kyle, just want to say thank you again. Uh, if I'm ever in Arizona, we might need to tee it up. A couple washed up golfers and uh, <laughs> just hang out and talk shop. But just want to say thank you again for coming on. It was really fun and uh, wishing you all the best in 2021. Appreciate it, Jonathan. Hey, you millennial millionaire. Are you looking for help getting to the next level in real estate? Are you looking for accountability and strategy to achieve your goals? If so, Jonathan is now taking on one-on-one -on -one students and opening a few spots in his private mastermind. It's affordable and welcome to everyone. If you had any questions or think you may need a boost, send Jonathan a message on Facebook or email at johnjfarber at outlook.com. 